If you have your Bibles, we're still in chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 15. Sermon on the Mount. Continue with this quintessential teaching from Jesus. It's uh, As I've been going through this, doing a sermon series, you think you know this, and then you read through it, and you're like, man, there's more here than I thought. It's kind of nice. Uh, it's one of the, I guess, fringe benefits of being a pastor. You get to do this a lot and get into it more and you see how living and active it really is uh, as you you can read sometimes just a phrase let alone a verse and it touches you in ways that maybe it didn't before so starting in verse 15 and then if you do have your Bible we're going to be moving around a little bit um, just to kind of look at other things that talk about the same type of thing prophets and such so verse 15 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus, as he's done a lot here, we just got off the narrow gate and the wide gate information He's using analogies all the time. Now, not so much parables here, but metaphors and analogies to try to understand who he is and what's the most important. Uh, so when he states that to be, you're supposed to beware of false prophets, logically, he assumed they existed, right? You wouldn't tell somebody to be careful of something that was never going to be a problem. Um, you go in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, one of the other longer uh, speeches or sermons of Jesus, mostly to his followers, right before he died, at least it's toward the end of the week, uh, and he says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Uh, so he tells that to them then, and he's going to, we got to see this today too, it happens in every generation. So Jesus also makes another assumption uh, that there is such a thing as objective standard of truth. That's out there now, your truth, my truth, which, you know, in some cases that's true, but not for all cases. Uh, you can believe that gravity is not effective and jump off a building and it doesn't matter what your truth is there, you'll still splat. You know, you have to remember those things. You know, there's a, is the teaching of Jesus objective truth, the teaching of the Bible objective or subjective? That's been a question for a long time. If you go back to Jeremiah, and that's one of the places we're going to jump quickly here, this is an inf- information. If you remember Jeremiah, we're already up to chapter 23 by this time. Jeremiah was told he's a, he's a prophet right before the exile. Um, lots of bad kings, Israel, northern tribes have already been dispersed into Assyria a century and a half ago. And then you have the Babylonians are knocking at our door, and this Jeremiah comes to say, the reason this is happening is this is judgment on you. Give up. I'm not going to fight for you, Yahweh says. You're going to lose. Minimize your losses. You're going to go in exile for a while. And other prophets came and said, no, God still likes us. He doesn't really care how we act. He doesn't care if we follow his covenant. And we're going to be okay. And this is what Jeremiah comes back and says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. 
They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. For who among, you, uh, who among them have stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest that will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back. This is what Jeremiah has been saying all along. Until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned away from their evil way and from their evil deeds. So you see false prophets all the way back in the 6th century B.C. And it happened. How do we know that Jeremiah was a true prophet and the rest of them weren't? They lost. <laughs> the, they went into exile for 70 years into Babylonia and Jeremiah with them. So, again, they couldn't both be right, right? I mean, Jeremiah said, you're going into exile, you're going to lose. These other prophets said, oh, no, that's never going to happen, we're going to win. Well, somebody was going to be wrong, and that's one of the ways to tell a true prophet. Jesus gives us the main way we do this as we go forward. But the word prophet is the word that... Uh, has a little bit of different meaning in the Old Testament than it does in the New, and, and today it can be that way. Um, you know, we get all kinds of ways of using that. Most of the time in our day and age, a prophet will often be somebody who can say something about the future and be right. So I think you get this a lot of times in like gambling. You know, do you know who's going to win? Are you a prophet? You know, yeah, that's the, but th that's not the main thing it is in the Old Testament. Um, what does a prophet do? A prophet speaks the word of God. That's really the main thing. A priest represents the people to God. You know, you couldn't go into the temple and just sacrifice your own lamb or bull or pigeon. You had to have the priest be the intermediary. He was the one that was the mediator between you and Yahweh in the Old Covenant. We don't have those in the New Covenant, any priests in the New Testament. A prophet represents Yahweh or God to the people, the opposite direction. So that's always kind of in the background. But so what do they normally do if you read the prophets? Well, they call the people back to covenant faithfulness. That's the main thing. You, you know, Isaiah, you are not following my ways. Well, how would they know? He gave them the ways. Read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, the ways are clear. It's they're not doing it. That was the problem. That's why God abandoned them for a short period of time and they went into exile. Now, sometimes there is a telling of future events. Jeremiah is doing that. In the future, you're losing. Um, that's out there. Uh, but what's the main thing they're trying to do? Encourage obedience and warn against disobedience. That's a main thing a prophet does. The main word, we all know the word, starts with an R, ends with a repent. Yeah, repent, right? That's what they all say. What does it mean? Turn away from your evil ways. Turn back to what you know is right. The objective standard of truth given. So that's what prophets mainly do. And why there's a lot of predictive prophecy, although it's a very small percentage of each book, is a lot of it's messianic. You know, you read Isaiah 1 through 39, it's almost all turn back, repent, repent, repent. You get to Isaiah 40 through 66, you get both that and this suffering servant that's coming, this comforter who's coming, this eventual new heaven and new earth that's coming. So there is predict predictive, but it's all based on obedience. So what happens in the New Testament? 
did Jesus call 12 prophets to walk with him? Well, we don't really call them that. Um, what do we call them? You know, apostles, you know? And you think about, they have that kind of prophetic role, and again, they're speaking God's word to the people. We, we have this, this is one scripture to always remember, because people are going to ask you, you know, the two questions. You know, how do you know the Old Testament is true, or why do you believe that? And how do you know the New Testament is true, and why do you believe that? Now, there's all kinds of textual evidence, and we go through that in Bible studies and all that, but the Old Testament's really easy. Jesus thought it was perfectly inerrant. Every time he uses it, all he says is, it is written. Even the devil knew it. You know, in the temptation, it's like, you know, turn these stones into bread. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy. Jesus thought the Old Testament was perfectly pristine and everything we need. So if somebody says, why do you think the Old Testament is true? Just said, Jesus thinks so, and I agree with him. And if you don't like it, you know, take it up with him. Um, the New Testament, well, this scripture helps us. This is in the upper room where Jesus is with his disciples here in the, the, the longest uh, talk of Jesus called the Upper Room Discourse. But he says, and remember who you is here. This, he's talking to the apostles. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, there's that word again, all that I have said to you. Now, I'd like this to be for me, but it's not really directly to me. You know, you can say, man, I don't need to study the Bible. I'll just pray and God will give me all the information. Heck, maybe that'll even work if I'm going to college. You know, just remember all the calculus and differential equations and not have to study. It's like, yeah, I can imagine what God would say to you if you went that way. I, can, I mean, he might talk to you. He might say, Brian, you're lazy. You know, study. But this is for the apostles. This is the idea, why do we believe the new? And there's other, other texts that say this, but the Old Testament was a textual faith. God had written down what was to believe so we could have it secure. Same thing with the new. They started writing. Gospels, we're in one now. You have the idea that, and how do we know we got it right? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to make sure. And he's going to help them remember everything. So you can say, well, how do we know? Here we are in Matthew. How do we know that Matthew got this right? Well, that's what I would use. It's the old adage my Hebrew professor said in, in seminary. People were, well, how do we know? And all these people were worried. And I just remember that what he said uh, with his North Carolina accent in Texas. Um, God saw to it that we have what we need. It's one of the best lines I'll remember that all the rest of my life. God saw to it. And it's so much, it's so depth there. It's like, well, would God say here, I'm going to, I want you to follow Jesus, and you have to follow him to have eternal life, and here's the things you're supposed to do, and then we can't count on his word? God breathed air? Does that make any sense? Yeah. So now, after the New Testament's completed, which we have, and why do we believe it's completed? Why don't we add to it? Because we think Jesus is sufficient, and everything in those 27 books is sufficient for our salvation and service. But after it's completed, the main prophetic role in the church is the faithful, clear, and diligent exposition of God's word, which is just usually preaching and teaching or just telling other people. That's a prophetic role because if you tell the gospel, what are you, at, what are you telling them to do? Repent. Oh, that sounds very prophetic, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? In fact, Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1. Repent, the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what is it? Repent. You're guilty. I'm here to fix that. That's kind of so prophetic. So when he says false prophets, you can almost just say false teachers. Um, it's not 
wait around and see if they get the, you know, they got the right team in the Super Bowl. Well, I don't, eh. it's more the teaching that we're looking at and trying to understand. So, when we look at this, he gives some warnings here. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And you see this, this idea of sheep and shepherd in John 10, which is the quintessential I am the good shepherd uh, text. But just in verses 10 through 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. So there you get this, it's in the background here, this sheep thing in wolves clothing. He who is a hired hand does, and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So you've got these together, right? You know, who knows? I don't know the timing of this, but heck, maybe John 10 was given two days after the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know, or two days before. But I think that's the idea. He is the good shepherd. They come to you in sheep's clothing. There's this metaphor coming over and over. So what? one of the main characteristics of a false prophet is, is their in the Old Testament, was that amoral optimism. Oh, God likes us. We're Jews. Don't worry about it. And we have that today, too, right? Well, I'm in. You know, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. It doesn't really make any difference what I do. You know, I don't know where they're reading this stuff, but... Um, so they deny that God is a God of judgment as well, mercy and love. Uh, and I think that's always a problem. Uh, so Jesus warns against false prophets right after his words about salvation. Uh, we had the narrow way, which was harder, you know, to get through. And the idea that salvation is something that you have to seek and you don't always find this narrow gate. And so the destination in the crowd, we talked about that last week. This is the main teaching. So the three main ways false prophets or teachers distort the gospel are they make it harder for seekers to find the narrow gate. In fact, it's such a false gospel that the narrow gate is so behind so many vines you wouldn't find it if you tried. And we have that today, I think, in what we call a prosperity gospel. I don't know if any of these people have actually read the Bible. I'm thinking no. <laughs> uh, it's not good uh, at all. It's the idea that if you believe in Jesus, you'll always get what you want in this life. I just don't the cross kind of screams no to that, right? I mean, it's, it, and then we don't want to do the, the opposite either. The, you know, that's called the health and wealth gospel. I don't think we want to believe, you know, the sick and poor gospel either. It's like, well, if you follow Jesus, you're always going to be sick and you're not going to have any money. Well, we're not saying that either, right? It's just that this isn't the main thing. And let God decide when. We've had, we've all had that, right? We've had times in our life when you pray for either a person or situation that's tough, and the prayer doesn't get answered. We talked about that with the ask, seek, and find a couple weeks ago. Well, we have to just step back and say, God knows better. You know, in this world, we will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You know, that's the idea. The health and wealth gospel doesn't line up with reality. If it's true that if you are faithful, you never get sick, you'd never die. How's that working out for them? And I, I, I'm hesitating because you're like, well, no, 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 following the Christians much, 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 much harder and more boring and 
No, I don't think that's what we're saying. We're just saying what is true. And you know it as well as I do. If you know, It's what really matters is our connection to God. And eventually uh, that word of faith, health and wealth gospel essentially waters it down to such an extent that God is just a genie in a cloud and you rub the lamp when you want something. That's not what, who's in charge then? I'm in charge. I just pray really hard and I get what I want. Sometimes I'm not sure what I want. You know, even though you think you know what you want. Let's let God do it. So that's, it's a watered down gospel. It's not real. It's a, the other one is they teach that the narrow way is much broader than Jesus implied. You kind of fall into it. You know, you just, no, oh, you just kind of boom, you're in. And there's no seeking, there's no real repentance, that type of stuff. So essentially becoming a Christian without becoming a disciple. Uh, becoming a Christian with really no commitment. Just kind of by osmosis. You know, you put the Bible into your pillow and hopefully it'll work out. That type of stuff. I mean, what does Jesus say, you know? Come to me, take up your cross, know my word, all those types of things. Number three, they assert that the broad road does not lead to destruction. This is a big one. All roads lead to heaven. Um, always lead to God, if you're sincere, you know. But can you be sincerely wrong? And that's really what it comes down. And who is, where are you placing your confidence? So these are the things, they're back then, they are now, they're the same. Uh, different vestiges cloaked in different types of sheep's clothing, but it's still a bunch of wolves. And again, I don't know their motive. Maybe their motive is they think their way, that their way is right and Jesus' way is wrong. That's possible. I mean, the motive really does. He doesn't say, you know, you'll worry about their motives, worry about their fruit. So wolves in sheep's clothing, one of the problems, they're hard to spot. The kids did good on the picture, I thought. It was pretty good. But sometimes they're hard to spot. So how do we do that? Well, there's a couple tests, and he does this metaphor shift, which Jesus does a lot. He goes from wolves and sheep to trees and fruit and just flips right into it. Now, you may mistake a wolf for a sheep, but a tree cannot hide its identity for long. It starts to grow. Hopefully, yours are growing in your backyard or wherever you have it. It's got some rain, so it's looking nice. Eventually, it's going to show its characters, an apple tree, a pear tree, an orange tree, a thistle tree, whatever tree is this good fruit or bad fruit. But the main thing is it's going to show its condition. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So we've got to figure out what this fruit is, don't we? Well, one of them is the character and con conduct of the person. In Galatians, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you kind of luck for those. Or you hope they're desiring that. Against these things, there is no law because you do these things and you're following what Christ wants. So a teacher that, that's teaching the truth should eventually show some of this true fruit. You know, we're all working on some of this stuff. We don't do it perfectly. But it shouldn't be, a, you know, impurity, envy, or self-indulgence, or what I heard one pastor say, yes, I have been very sinful, but I'm anointed. I, I didn't remember reading that one in there, but, you know, that's out there. Can't touch God's anointing. Uh, that's not biblical, folks. That's, that you should see this is some of it. 
But the teaching itself is the key, isn't it? This is how you know a wolf from a sheep. Does it line up with what the Bible says? And Matthew 12 gives you some of that. I'll let you read that on your own. The, the idea of he uses that fruit metaphor and goes farther about it, that you're going to know. Well, how are we going to know? How are we going to know if it's bad fruit or good fruit? What is our standard? That's the key. First John 4, 1, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. Well, how do we know that? That's the, isn't this the problem? We've got, how do we know what is true and what is false? That is the biggest thing you should always get in your mind. We've had a number of people in the years I've been here that have gone on to other places to worship and to live. Uh, and it's always tough to see them go, but I remember even one family came in, oh, we don't know what to do, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, this isn't that hard of a decision. You need to go, but I hate to. But that's the way it goes sometimes. You know, this is better for them. You know, but what, then they, when they leave, they, if they ask me, and this is true for college kids or whatever, if you go in some place, make sure the number one thing I would look for is this what in, in our statement of faith? Um, what do they think about the Bible? Because everything else will flow through that. Um, and I've got our beliefs here. Um, you can get that out there if you want to look at it. I'm, you know, what makes a church an evangelical free church is this, this these ten essential beliefs. We, we say we're going to follow these best we can uh, and try to help each other understand them. Uh, the essentials, you know, it's the old moniker, you know, that we should be united in the essentials. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. So we're not going to argue over things that are not essential. Uh, but these are the things we think are essential. And the second one, this is, if you can see this, it's out there. There's, there's God, the Bible, and then it gets into the human condition, which is obviously Jesus Christ is the solution, the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church. Christian living, his return, and response, and eternal destiny. But the Bible, and I thought this was, it's not real long, it's, it's short, but I, I've always liked this. Um, well, how many people here grew up evangelical free? And get that hand way up there. One, two. Me either, <laughs> you know. But again, we you 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 essentially want to land where you think is feeding you the most, and you can use your gifts and talents the most. And there obviously are a number of churches, even in town, that are very faithful to the essentials, and that's great. But so we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God. I want to stop. Verbally inspired God. Remember, we're not, I don't know what happened. Do you, I mean, you ever think about it? I've told the women's Bible study, one of the best ways when you're reading the Bible to try to understand different things is, is act like you're, you're a director of a movie. And so like the Sermon on the Mount, you're saying, okay, he's coming up here. No, it's not, what would that look like? If you're going to do a movie, where would you shoot this scene? You know, yellow smoke? Your deck? To make it look right. So you start thinking about it, you know. Well, have you ever thought about, okay, we're reading through Matthew here. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. How did that work? How did Matthew write this stuff down? Was it all at once? Was he glowing? Did he just kind of shut, and then Gabriel took the pen and went like that? 
That's kind of Muhammad, if you want to know. <laughs> we don't, you know, dictation theory, you know, where he just dictates it. You're just like, you know, just tell me what to put down there, you know. Well, the belief is he used human authors. I don't know. But the, why do, does that matter? Well, a little bit. Um, I think The Chosen has a scene that's pretty cool. Um, if I remember it right, uh, I think it's Peter, uh, no, John. John is sitting at the desk, and Mary's there with him, and, you know, this is after, of course, Jesus has been crucified. It's kind of a flash forward, I think we would call it. And he's, he's in there, and he's, in, you know, I don't know, this is their movie, so they can do what they want with it, but it was one way. Of, he says, I want to start, he's, he's thinking about writing his gospel. You know, I want to start it with something. He's like, you know, how do I start? Do I go back to, like, Abraham or... You know, and or back to Noah or where, Moses. And he's like, Matthew's starting with the lineage, you know, which is just cool. It's, you know, who knows how they all interacted. And then eventually he says, he's looking at him, and she's kind of helping him a little bit. And he's saying, I think I'm going to go back to the beginning. And then you get that cool chosen music, you know, that, well, think, how does John start? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I don't know how that worked. I mean, he wasn't glowing in their movie. But that, I think it's interesting to think about those things, how that worked. You know, all we have from, like, Peter is that they were carried along by the Spirit. But that's not what we're saying here. We're not saying we have to believe in some particular way that it was transmitted. We believe in what's called the verbal inspiration of the Word of God. We believe the words are correct. That's what we stand for. How they got there, I don't know. I mean, the Holy Spirit did it through authors. I mean, it's on my bucket list when I die if I care. How does this really work? Um, it, we're not really given, so my guess is we're probably not need to know. But again, the words themselves, God saw to it that we've got what we need. So that's the verbal part. The, so as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. And just a quick line, we, we, we can take all the stuff we got and get back to the original in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic. It's not that difficult. The complete revelation of his will for salvation, that's why we aren't adding to them, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. This is a very strong, high view of the Bible. It's an inerrant view that we don't probe about. It's like people can believe other things. Believe what you want. You know, you can come here and believe what you want, but as an e-free church, we're going to be teaching this. And then finally, therefore, is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And that makes the, all the difference in the world. If you believe that, it's not that hard to follow Jesus' teachings here because we know what the sheep looks like, the sheep teaching, the shepherd teaching. We can do some study, do some reading, work with each other, and we can find out what's false. And yes, we will argue about the non-essentials. Heck, we might argue about the essentials, <laughs> but hopefully we land the plane on the essentials. It's really, the gospel's really not that hard. I mean, if you think about it, we're lost, hell-bound. Jesus sees that, dies on a cross, takes the penalty for our sin, takes the guilt away, gives us grace, and asks us to live a life of gratitude. That's not that hard. That's the essentials, right? So really, you think about it, if you're on the path, it's kind of like you're on the, the boat to salvation. A lot of the stuff we argue about is where the deck chairs should be. 
it's, you know, I like my deck chair in the sun, but it's not, why do we argue about those things? I don't know. We can discuss them. I think that's fine. So again, that's what the teaching itself. Can we rely on what we have so that we can do it? So that's a big part, the teaching itself, knowing that this is inerrant, infallible. And there are parts of it that are kind of tough, but not the essentials. It's really not that hard. And then the prophet's influence. What effect does the teaching have on their supporters? If you read through 2 Timothy, over half of it's about the worried about false teaching. 1 Timothy is more kind of setting up, obviously written to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus that was a companion of Paul in many ways. And this is what he says in, in chapter 2 to Timothy. This is Paul writing, Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. <laughs> I like that. Um, this kind of talk spreads like cancer, as is the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. You know, that it's back then already, and it doesn't take long. And he's telling Timothy, don't follow these people. This is all we know about them. And I don't know if that's the way their names are pronounced. If you ever do this, just read it, and people think you know what you're talking about. These are hard names, <laughs> some of them. But, but, but again, there's a problem already. Don't follow them. They said that the resurrection of the dead had already happened. Do you feel resurrected? Some days more than others? I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. That's supposed to come. What's supposed to precede the resurrection of the dead? There's one thing we should have before that. Second coming. When? I don't know. But that should precede it. You know. Jesus coming, then the resurrection of the dead. So, not good. So, how do you test this stuff? Well, fruit testing is not always simple or straightforward. Sometimes it's hard. Um, that's why it should almost always be done in community uh, with others so we don't mess this up. You have to be patient sometimes because the fruit sometimes takes time to grow and ripen. Um, and there's two problems, and you see this today. I'm sure you saw it back then with testing. It's hard to recognize fruit from a distance. It's a problem with being suspicious of everyone. I mean, I think you can be cautious of everyone, but if you have a, you know, if, if I go on vacation, you have a guest speaker, are you going to think, you know, this guy's probably going to screw this up? Don't do that. <laughs> you know, give him the benefit of the doubt before. And listen, I mean, obviously, and... And I'm sure, you know, as a pastor, you say a lot of words, and sometimes we say words and we miss it, you know. I mean, I don't think Jesus missed it, but we could, you know. I mean, it's not the goal, but uh, it can happen. Uh, be, you know, be gracious. But from a distance, you know, we, we, we look at people, and, and again, it's that very, very bad idea of assuming somebody's motives when you don't know them. That'll get you in trouble all the time. Tree is judged by its fruit, not what it feels like when it has the fruit. Um, it's the fruit itself that we're looking at. And it's very hard to tell if there's a worm inside, if you're from a distance. You can't just do a superficial analysis. And if you've been in the tactics class, you know what the question you should always ask, right? If somebody says something, you're a little like, well, what does he, what does he mean or she mean by that? What are you supposed to say? What do you mean by that? Get, get more clarity. You know, Jesus does this a lot. It's just kind of a Socratic method. And once you get the clarity, then and if they have a belief or a statement that you think is not lining up with 
scripture or what beliefs should we should have, you know, you ask them how they came to that conclusion. Maybe learn, maybe they need some help. So, again, in, in 2 Timothy, you know, Jesus' words here are not to be taken as a heresy hunt. That's not what we're doing. Just looking for somebody to screw up. But a reminder that there are false teachers in the church and we are to be on guard. Um, anything I say today, if it's not lining up with Scripture, I would hope that you point that out. And if I keep doing it, I hope you fire me. Not real. Well, I, yeah, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Don't have somebody feeding you garbage. Second Timothy 4, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead, which he's not just throwing away words here, right? You're going to stand in judgment when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not, Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carrying out the ministry God has given. Now, he's talking to a pastor. He's talking to Timothy there, but it, I think it extends somewhat to us. Don't set under the teaching of somebody that's not giving you the true teaching. I mean, anybody who knows me knows very clearly I don't know at all. Some days I don't even know, think I know most. Uh, you, you think you got it. But the essentials we should always be hitting well because to Jesus, truth matters. This itching ear one, we've heard that, right? What does that mean? Tell me what I want to hear. Almost everybody I know who has a, you know, a, a non-biblical view of things that are permeating our society, sexuality, things like that, uh, Jesus being exclusive, it's all because they know someone that they love that ha has a different viewpoint. And they think it's unloving to, to push that viewpoint. And I think you have to be cautious. And I'm not saying you have to shove it down somebody's throat. But the idea is, so they want to hear people say, oh, they're okay. God doesn't care about that behavior. But, and sometimes I feel that way, to tell you, that, especially the sexuality issues. I would be fine if we could just quit talking about them. But can we? It just keeps coming back. We have to stand up for the truth. And you have to do it in a, in a, in a gracious way. I realize that. But again, you, you keep coming back. People say, well, you know, I don't want to make them feel bad. It's like they're not on the boat. <laughs> they're going to feel really bad when they die, I guarantee you. It might be bad. It's hard. I realize that. Don't correct someone. We had this in the beginning. You know, judge people graciously. Why are you telling them this? Hopefully it's because you're concerned about their connection to God. But that should be the main one. So how do we do this well? Well, the number one thing is study your Bible. Um, alone or in groups. I don't know why every time I read that it makes me think of Slinky. I don't, and, and nobody else is grabbing on that, you know. What walks downstairs alone or in pairs and makes a Slinky. I don't know why that comes to me. But anyway, must be some sort of weird kid thing. So study your Bible, alone or in pairs, you know, or in groups. I mean, it's, it's something we talk about all the time. We have a lot of options in, in each week and in 
we uh, suspend a few during the during the uh, summertime, but there's always ways to do that. We're still meeting on Saturdays. The men's still meeting on Tuesdays. Women on Thursday morning, and of course, we have our Sunday morning. So we've got, and that's just that. I mean, there's other people meeting. Um, it's just the idea to get, let's, let's know the truth really well. Let's know what the shepherd teaches as his sheep. So if a wolf comes in, we're ready, ready to stop it and see it. And you'll get good at it. And my, I pray, I have people praying for me about this. It's like, and it's just a really short prayer. Lord, help Pastor Brian not be annoying. Because you can do that. I mean, you go somewhere, it's like, well, that's not right. That should have been worded differently. It's like, I hope, and that you know people are doing it to you, so you have to be. What was that golden rule we had last week? Do unto others as you would have. So, you know, can I just walk in and worship without critiquing everything? Um, but th it's there. It'll, you'll, you're, you'll get that antenna. You'll start following that. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and correctly explains the word of truth. You know, this is, this is a mandate for us by grace. So Jesus' words are not only for church leaders here, I think. He, he's addressing this to all true Christians. If, if more believers would heed his words here, if all of us realize that every day we wake up as a disciple of Jesus, our main job is to get to know him better through his word and through his spirit and through our actions and through his people, we would not be in the middle of this moral and theological confusion that we're in right now in our culture because we would have the word of truth and we wouldn't get our ears itched all the time. Uh, he's given us what we need. We just need to try to follow it, knowing that it's by his grace always that we know him and have salvation through him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching about wolves in sheep's clothing. So easy for us to miss that. But may we always major in the majors. May we always worry about mainly the essential beliefs, not things that ultimately are secondary. May we always put your son first, his cross, your spirit, and your word. Amen.